So I had been very, very active against narco-traffickers. And that's why in 1982, Pablo Escobar, that was the richest man in the world at that time, he threatened my life in 1982, saying that he was going to kill me. Sinclair, we're still on the air. It's great. It's amazing. Sam Stacy and, of course, Senator Lindsey Graham did a great job. But now it's our turn to shine. I think we can top them. Yeah, um, I think so. What do you think we'll need to beat a sitting U.S. senator? I think we have to go with a former president. Really? Yeah, I think we could do that. Maybe one that was kidnapped Well, by Pablo Escobar? That would be an impressive interview to land. <laughs> um so welcome to the second episode of Global. If you didn't catch the first episode of the podcast, Global is a monthly podcast focused on one country per episode. We take a deeper dive into each country to give listeners a holistic understanding of recent events and a country's democratic trajectory. This episode, we will be talking about Colombia. So to be honest, I didn't really know anything about Colombia. Uh, it, it's Colombia. Colombia. I'm Colombia. really trying hard to pronounce that correctly, and I don't know if I'm failing or succeeding half the time, but I'm aware that there's a difference now, at least. <laughs> and, you, and you know, Sinclair, I didn't realize our generation gap until I talked to you about the Juan, Juan Valdez. Valdez. And, yeah. You know, um, so yeah, uh, what is Juan Valdez? Can so you tell Juan me? Valdez is this spokesperson. I mean, you know, it's a it's a character for Colombian coffee. And uh, there were these cool commercials, uh, which I'm sure we'll hear at some point during the, the show. Uh, You'll insist on it. Yes. Yeah, well, we must. <laughs> there is no sun like the sun of Colombia. It shines on our land with special intensity and for just the right number of days to give our coffee a special richness. Here men such as Juan Valdez handpick their coffee with pride. There is no other coffee like the 100% Colombian. So, JT, what do we need to know about Colombia? What are the fast facts? Well, Sinclair, I'm glad you asked. The population of Colombia is about 47 million people and is the second largest country in South America after Brazil. Colombia has the third largest Spanish-speaking population in the world. Oh, okay. Colombia is the only country in South America that has coastlines on both the Pacific Ocean and the Caribbean oh, Sea. Cool. While Colombia has a very violent history, and we'll learn more about that soon, the second city, Medellin, was once the murder capital of the world with 17 murders every day in 1991. Wow. Were you even born then? Yes, I was born in 1991. How I old was, were you? I was two years old. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Well, interestingly, Colombia also produces 60% of the world's emeralds. And finally, by some accounts, is the happiest country in the world? The happiest? Yeah. How do we know that? Yeah, according to a Gallup survey um, of 66,000 people from 68 countries, Colombia came pretty high up in terms of the happiness rating. So, JT, on our docket today, we have the former president of Colombia, President Pastrana, Nick Miroff from the Washington Post, and IRI's own Gabriela Serrano. In Bogota. Sounds like a great lineup. Let's get started. Before President Pastrana and other experts on Colombia talk about modern history, I wanted to learn a little bit more about um, the history of Colombia before 
the 1950s. So I did a little research. The first European to set foot on Colombia was not actually Columbus. It was one of his companions named Alonso de Ojeda. He was so impressed with the richness of Colombia's natural resources and gold that it gave rise to this legend of El Dorado, the mythical kingdom and city of gold. And this legend pretty much drove the Spanish to continue conquering Colombia. As the Spanish empire continued to grow, uh, they created the Viceroyalty of New Granada in 1717 with Bogota as the capital. It comprised the territories of what are today Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, and Venezuela. After the French invaded Spain, and Napoleon put his own brother on the Spanish throne. New Granada rebelled, at first in support of the true Spanish throne, and then uh, it became an independence movement, and the hero of that independence movement was Simon Bolivar, who won six battles against the Spanish in 1812, was defeated, the Spanish reconquered in 1817. Bolivar came back. He had the support of a British legion and uh, Venezuelan forces, and he reconquered all the way from the Andes over to Bogota. Simón Bolívar and Francisco Santander were the seeds of the two movements whose disagreement would dominate Colombian politics for the next hundred years. Simón Bolívar's were the forerunners of the Conservative Party, which sought strong centralized government, limited franchise and alliance with the Roman Catholic Church. Santander's followers, who were forerunners of the liberals, wanted a decentralized government, state rather than church control over education, and other civil matters, and broadened suffrage. This disagreement resulted in eight civil wars and dozens of insurrections in the 19th century. Eight civil wars? Eight. And one civil war, which was the War of a Thousand Days, left more than 100,000 dead. The worst civil war that Colombia experienced, however, was La Violencia, and it occurred in the 1940s and 1950s. To learn more about Colombia's history... We had the incredible opportunity to discuss with a main character from Colombia's history, the 30th president of Colombia, Andres Pastrana. President Pastrana was the mayor of Bogota from 1988 to 1990, served as president from 1998 to 2002, and went on to become the ambassador to the United States in 2005. Today, IRI is proud to have him as a member of our International Advisory Council. President Pastrana is still very engaged in politics today. In full disclosure to our listeners, he, along with former president Uribe, were a part of the No Movement to reject the first peace deal with the FARC. The peace deal is also an incredibly complex agreement dealing with decades-old grievances, and it's also very polarizing. 50.2% of voters rejected it, compared with 49.8% who voted for it. So it's important to state that IRI takes no official stance on the peace deal. And throughout this episode, I hope that we deliver an unbiased understanding of the current situation. IRI is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization. So, President Pastrana, for all our international listeners who are not experts on South American history, could you give us a brief historical overview of Colombia? First of all, thank you very much for the invitation uh, to discuss some of the issues in my country. Colombia is uh, the oldest democracy in Latin America. It's a country that, uh, unfortunately, we have suffered uh, more than 50 years of uh, violence, different type of uh, violence in Colombia. First, in the 50s, 60s, 
we had a political violence. We used to have a bipartisan system between liberals that are similar to the Democrats in the United States and um, conservatives like the Republicans in the States. And in the 60s, we agreed on a peace process, a political peace process. It was a time that uh, we have um, basically two large guerrilla groups that um, uh, were acting in Colombia, the FARC, that is, uh, used to be, or still is, a Marxist-Leninist group, according to their ideology. And uh, we have the ELN, that is a pro-Cuban movement, still very active in Colombia. In the 70s, or starting the 80s, we start having the problem of narco-trafficking, exporting first Colombia marijuana, and they, and then we became the largest producers of cocaine. We had the two largest drug cartels in the world. Maybe you remember one of them is the Medellin cartel, whose leader was Pablo Escobar, and the Cali cartel that was oriented by two brothers, the Orejuela brothers, that they are now in the United States. Specifically, the Orejuela brothers are breaking rocks with other rocks in a federal correction facility in Butner, North Carolina, and Edgefield, South Carolina. And in the 90s, we start to have a, another group promoting violence in Colombia that was a, the, the group of the paramilitaries. So uh, it's a country that we have suffered in the last 50 years a lot regarding violence. But on the other hand, it's a country, if you see what happened in what it was called the lost decade of Latin Americas in the 70s and the 80s, is the only country that grew at that time according to economics. We never failed to pay our foreign debt. We Colombians, we never restructured our foreign debt. We never had hyperinflations like many countries in Latin America. You remember that you have countries with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000% of inflation. Colombia, at the worst, had 27, 28, 30%. So it's a, co a country that economically is an example for the region. Maybe it's an example of the world. Even all the difficult moments that we had with our violence in in, 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 in Colombia. To end La Valencia, the liberal and conservative parties had to agree to a power-sharing agreement in which they would alternate control over the presidency for 16 years. Do you think this subverted Colombia's democracy or saved it? As I told you before, we used to have two huge parties, big parties, the liberals and conservatives. And we started having problems of violence between the two parties. And in 1953, 1954, we started discussions on how can we end the violence in Colombia, the political violence. And we agree, and this is something that I think could be an example even today for many of the countries in the Arab, uh, uh, Arab League or many of uh, the countries that are having problems in the Middle East. We decide that we were going to have a national front for 20 years. Every four years, we were going to change government. The first government was going to be held by the liberals, the second 
four years by conservatives, the third by liberals, the fourth by conservatives. And the last period of those 20 years, it was going to be open between liberals and conservatives. But the important thing, Sinclair, is that you have, even if the president was of the liberal party, half of the government was of the conservative party. And that alternate for the four years. In those 20 years, Colombia's developed. We have a strength of our own parties. And that's why I told you before that Colombia is the large, the oldest uh, democracy, more than 150 years of democracy. It was very important because we end violence. And in 1978, the National Front finished. And there we have open elections. And there has been alternation also in the government with open democracy. Some terms have been in the hands of the liberals, other ones have been in the hands of the conservatives. And now we have an open uh, and more open democracy because we have more parties. Well, President Pastrana, before we move away from history, though, I wanted to ask you quickly about just a little bit about the origins. You've talked about of the guerrilla groups, the drug cartels, the paramilitary groups. Where did all these groups come from? In the 50s, after we ended the political violence in Colombia between liberals and conservatives, some of these groups stay in the mountains. And that group was called the FARC. The first group that was created in Colombia is the FARC. The FARC is, uh, because I already always said, John, that in Colombia we had all types of different guerrilla groups. First of all, the FARC, Marxist-Leninist group, pro-Soviet Union at that time in the 50s, supported at that time by the Soviet Union, trained and financed by the Soviet Union until the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then it was created also in the 60s, the ELN. ELN is called the National Liberation Army in English. It was a pro-Cuban movement, or is a pro-Cuban movement, financed and trained by the Cubans, by Fidel Castro at that time, and still is active in Colombia. We had another group that it was called the M19. The M19 was a nationalist group. The, and they made a peace process in the 80s, at the end of the 80s and the 90s. And they now, it's a political party in Colombia. Even some of them are in Congress. Some of them have been ministers, governors, mayors, elected mayors and governors. And even vice president of Colombia was from that guerrilla movement. And then we have the paramilitaries that start end of the 80s and starting of the 90s to be very active in, in Colombia. And that was a private right-hand uh, group, some of them financed by the private sector. And unfortunately, they were very active doing a lot of massacres and violation of human rights. And the worst thing, I think, the, the curse that we had in Colombia is that narco-trafficking. Because at the end, narco-trafficking is the one that is financing all the Garuda movements. We had the largest cartel, as you know, Colombian is number one export of coca or cocaine in the world. We used to have the largest cocaine cartels in the world in Colombia. And now the largest cocaine cartel, according not to Colombia, according to the U.S. 
according to the State Department of the United States, the largest, the largest and richest drug cartel in the world is the FARC, the guerrilla movement of Colombia. And that's why we propose, even during my tenure, during my term, Plan Colombia. Okay, this is important to understand because Plan Colombia was a game changer in Colombia's history. And that was really what happened that changed Colombia is what, when I create Plan Colombia, at that time with President Bill Clinton, and then with the support of President Bush. And it was a plan that basically was conceived, first of all, to go after drug trafficking, narcotics, but also social investment in many of the areas in Colombia, training and strengthening of our army, but also strengthening our institution, basically the justice. So that was, that's very quickly the history of how all these different groups grow in Colombia. But at the end today, the worst problem that we're having is that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, now with the end of the Castro regime in Cuba, where are they getting all these resources for nar- from narco-trafficking? Uh, yes, and we also understood that you have your own experience, uh, personal experience with the drug cartels. Uh, were you, weren't you kidnapped at one point? So when I was a journalist and I, had, I was an editor of a news program, I have been very active against narco-trafficking because I think that's one of the worst crimes that we had today. Not only destroying our society, corrupting our political systems, destroying our young, the young people, the young generation. So I had been very, very active against narco-traffickers. And that's why in 1982, Pablo Escobar, that was the richest man in the world at that time, he was the most powerful man um, in, in Colombia because he has all his private armies. He threatened my life in 1982 saying that he was going to kill me. And six years after that, I was kidnapped when I was running for mayor of Bogota in my political headquarters. I was kidnapped in Bogota. Next day, they took me to Medellin, closer to, to Medellin. I was blindfolded and handcuffed, and they took me to a city close to Medellin. And a week after, fortunately for me, unfortunately for, for a good friend, the, the Attorney General, I never knew where I was because they took me by helicopter. I never knew where I was. It was one hour, one hour and a half flight, blindfolded and handcuffed. And uh, um, the Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel decided to kidnap the Attorney General of Colombia. And the attorney general was kidnapped when he was arriving to the Medellin airport on Monday. And in the rescue operation of the attorney general, they found me. Uh, They found me. The police saved me. But unfortunately, the attorney general, after Escobar, knew that the police freed me. He decided to kill the attorney general. And he was shot, I think, 25 or 26 times he was shot and he was killed by, by the Medellin cartel. Well, President Pastrana, that is, that is quite a story. And, um, you know, we've heard a lot here about the impact of uh, the guerrilla groups, cartels, paramilitary, um, very tumultuous times, some political violence. Um, Let me talk a little bit what happened with this peace process of President Santos, that that's what worries us in Colombia, the people of the know. 
On October 2, 6.5 million Colombians will vote no for the peace agreement with the FARC. The yes got 6.3. We won that referendum by a very small march. We said no to that agreement. It means that the president and the government need to start a new process. The president called uh, the leaders of the no, he called me, he called President Uribe, he called members of the Christian or the Christian churches, members, victims, no. I said, we said to the president, Mr. President, it's not a winning of war, it's a winning of peace, what, what happened today in Colombia. And I said to the president, today, Mr. President, you have 99% of the Colombian population in favor of the peace. But we need to do some changes. That is the yes won the elections or the, the referendum. All the agreement of the of the FARC was going to be part of the Colombian constitution. So we said to President Santos, you cannot change the Colombian constitution. You have to respect the constitution. Second, what I, I told you about the narco-trafficking. Imagine, these people have killed so many peoples in Colombia. They have bribed so many peoples in this country. They financed their violence for many years with narco-trafficking, and we cannot take them to jail, even that we cannot extradite them to the United States? How can we go to the United States today after I create Plan Colombia, more than $10 billion, how can I explain to them that you gave me $10 billion to fight a related offense? And third, if we're going to talk about narco-trafficking, who are your partners? Why the president did not ask the FARC saying, who are your partners? He didn't ask the FARC to give us the roots. Who and how are you exporting drugs to the United States and to Europe? And give us the labs. Where do you are processing all the drug in Colombia? And the most important thing, it's where do you have the money? According to Forbes, the FARC is the third largest terrorist group in the world. Where is all that money? He never asked those things. Also, that money is very important to pay the victims in Colombia. How do you think the world sees Colombia today? Uh, thinking broadly now, of course, a lot of people know about the drug cartels, the FARC uh, peace deal and a number of other issues. But how do you, as a, I'm a normal person on the street out in India, how do you see Colombia in the world today? And I think, I think that the perception of Colombia in the last 20 years is completely different of what happened in the last 50 years. But I think that perception in Colombia today is a different one. We have been fighting for the drug cultures in the last 20, 30 years. Plan Colombia, with the support of the United States, changed this country. So what can other countries learn from Plan Colombia? A lot. Because you could learn, first, of strengthening of the institutions. I think that's very important. A strengthening of the justice system is very important. How can we solve problems, for example, with social development? In the case of Colombia, we have to mm, design... Uh, new programs of alternative development in the cocaine areas. President Pastrana, I only knew one thing about Colombia growing up, and that was Juan Valdez. 
Have you ever met Juan Valdez? Yes. Does he exist? Yes. One at that time when we were young, Juan Valdez. When we start Juan Valdez, it was a publicity done in the United States. The first Juan Valdez, yeah, was from Puerto Rico. <laughs> Imagine. But now, now some years ago, about twenty-five, thirty years ago, we decide to do, uh, to do um, you know, we decide to select Juan Valdez from Colombia. So Juan Valdez today is an original coffee grower of Colombia. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, <laughs> President Pastrana, for, for joining okay. us. You've been such a great friend of IRI's. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, you've been a great guest uh, on our global podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you to Sinclair also for all the questions. Yo me llamo Cumbia, yo soy la reina por donde voy. We're joined now by Nick Miroff of the Washington Post. Uh, Nick has been reporting on Latin America for the past seven years and been with the Post for about ten. I'm always happy when when anybody's paying attention to Colombia. I think <laughs> it's an important story, and so happy to uh, contribute and um, answer your questions. As President Pastrana touched on. There was a referendum on a peace deal that was brought to the people. The The referendum was rejected. Um, president Santos reworked the peace deal. The president then decided to not go back to a referendum, but to bring the peace deal directly to Congress. It passed. Um, to give our listeners some background and sort of a greater understanding of, of, of how this came about, could you tell us a little bit more about the de facto type of government and, and how it works? Sure. Um, I mean, Colombia is a liberal democracy in the way that we would, you know, recognize one with, uh, uh, you know, free elections, uh, a free press, um, you know, a free speech and, and um, you know, a, uh, a very, a very stable government. And, you know, I think a government, a country with a, with a fairly robust civil society, uh, at least relative to other nations in the region. Could you explain the policy of democratic security under the former Uribe administration? Yeah. Um, you know, Uribe basically, you know, the democratic security initiative was basically, um, you know, part of a, a counterinsurgency program with, with support from the United States, but also um, an effort to kind of rebuild Colombian institutions. And, um, uh, you know, I think by most accounts, given Uribe's Popularity rating when he left office, it was it was successful on many levels. Even though um, it was also an era of uh, of a lot of uh, human rights abuses and um, extrajudicial killings. On what platform was the Santos administration elected to in 2010? Well, Santos was Uribe's defense minister and ran essentially as a you know the con- as the continuation of of you know Uribe. But he also, you know, recognized, I think, an opportunity to to finally get a peace deal with uh, with the FARC, and so uh, within about a year, I think, of him taking office, he went into kind of secret negotiations that were later made public, and that that produced a very um, loud um, and difficult break with with Uribe, and their political rivalry has ended up really dominating Colombian politics um, ever since. And so, the, the you know the the controversy over the peace deal was very much a split between 
Santos and his uh, in his coalition and uh, Uribe, who went on to found his own party and who you know maintained that Santos was really giving away too much and that the, and that the peace deal was going to be a kind of a vehicle for the FARC to take power in Colombia. So, for some context for our listeners, could you tell us? you know, a broad overview of what the initial peace deal looked like and then how the new one differs from the old one. Yeah, well, it's okay. This is a very complex document because it's, you know, over 300 pages and and more than just like a peace agreement, it's sort of a promise to transform um, politics in Colombia. And so the peace deals, it really has like several key points. One is like a commitment to to, uh, invest more in rural development, um, and rural infrastructure to help Colombian small farmers, who were really the kind of the base of the of the FARC's um, you know guerrilla movement. Um, there's a commitment to end uh, the, the drug trade. You know, the FARC is going to get out has you know committed to ending the drug trade and helping to um, you know to move beyond the kind of you know illegal economy. Um, there are guarantees for the FARC to, you know, to be able to participate in democratic politics that set the terms of how that uh, you know, participation will work and how that transition will go. Um, and then probably the most important and contentious element was, you know, what will be, you know, how will these, these FARC members be processed uh, judicially? You know, will um, those who have been convicted of, you know, of war crimes and other, you know, major abuses, you know, what will their, what will their, um, you know, you know, how will, how will their cases be processed? Um, and, and, you know, and then finally it was, it was about, you know, what are, how, how will the disarmament work? Um, you know, and what they eventually agreed is that, is that, uh, you know, the FARC will go into these UN monitored camps where they will uh, do kind of like a phased disarmament, not, not really. And, you know, they were very, they didn't want it to look like a surrender um, to the government or to the Colombian military. So it's very much like a, they're going to, they're going to hand over their weapons to UN monitors over the course of six months. And then they will, um, and then those camps will will close. And so that was basically the, the broad outline of the first peace accord and the new agreement isn't isn't you know significantly different? I would say it, you know it it, it 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 had some some major changes to the kind of the judicial part. Uh, it it walked back some of the commitments on rural development. Um, uh, you know it 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 restored the government's ability to kind of use um, uh, you know herbicides and and the forced eradication of coca. So there were you know they were kind of little tinkering details. But, um, you know, one of the big things that, that the Uribe and his coalition had opposed, which is really like the ability of the FARC leaders to get into democratic politics, you know, that, that wasn't changed. And that was one of the reasons why Uribe said he couldn't go along with the new version either. And so um, the deal is now, is now finalized and is, you know, we're in the kind of initial stages of implementation. How does this transitional justice process work? How will people um, maybe who were convicted of some political crimes such as rebellion and things like that. How, how will they be reconciled with the state? Well, well, under, under the terms of the accord, basically the lower level FARC fighters whose only, you know, crime is essentially, you know, something called rebellion, kind of like taking up arms against the state. 
those those folks will will receive a blanket amnesty, and then you know the 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 other the other FARC uh, members who have you know convictions for things like drug trafficking, terrorism, uh, kidnapping, murder, all of those things, you know they will enter this this transitional justice program in which they're they have to fully attest to their crimes. Um, and uh, and fully disclose, you know, their role in them, kind of like a truth and reconciliation process. Then, um, then they will be, you know, eligible for these kind of alternative sentencing, which would involve, you know, being at, um, you know, they would have some kind of restriction on their liberty, on their ability, on their freedom of movement. So they may be at like kind of, you know, work camps or things like that. And and the government has made it clear, you know, that this is not uh, like a like impunity. That you know that this is uh, an effective, you know, restriction on their ability to move around and their ability to participate in politics as well. And that um, you know, and that if if they don't honestly and truthfully and completely disclose what you know what they did, then they will be referred to the ordinary Colombian criminal justice system, where they could face you know up to 20 years in prison. Um, you mentioned that the peace deal, the new peace deal, walks back some of the regional development that were going to, they were going to do um, in response to the FARC demobilizing. Um, isn't that kind of necessary to as part of the whole reintegration and solving the root of the conflict problem um, to sort of make it not a power vacuum where you had the FARC before? <laughs> Yeah, this is a really critical point, and and this is one of the things that was the most that's really the most important to the FARC, right? Because because the FARC came to this process um, really kind of giving up on their long struggle to transform Colombia's economic and political model, and so the thing that they really could hang their hats on was this idea that they were going to get the government to commit to you know a bigger investment in rural development and rural infrastructure to really sort of help the small farmers who they who they claim to be fighting for. There's a big worry about, you know, you know, what happens in these areas where the FARC has been dominant and people um, uh, survive mostly by, you know, growing coca. You know, can the government rush to fill the power vacuum um, and, you know, in those places as the FARC pulls out? And one of the things that we've seen that's, you know, kind of a... Um, a discouraging sign so far is that is that the the state hasn't really effectively gone into those areas yet, and um, and the kind of you know the FARC is being replaced by maybe you know by crim- more criminal elements who are looking to take over the drug trade in that area. What do you think FARC political participation will look like? The FARC is pretty sophisticated, um, and uh, you know, and has already has you know a lot of people who've been working kind of in civilian level politics. It's not, it's not as if everybody in the, in the, you know, in the FARC is an armed, um, you know, hardened armed fighter. You know, it's, there are, um, you know, almost half of the FARC members I think are, are, are women. And, um, in the communities where the FARC is present, they've been doing kind of, uh, local level politics for a long time. And so I think, I think that they will um, be able to win seats in, um, in 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 some of those areas uh, right away, and it remains to be seen whether they will be effective, kind of on a on a larger national level. And so, what do you think is going to be the end result of this peace deal? Do you think it's going to be successful in ending the conflict, or do you think it will lead to other problems? 
you know, I think this is this is the end of the this is the end of the FARC as we know it. And I think that one of the big risks is that a lot of the lower ranking guerrillas, um, like if you know if things don't go well, if if they feel uh, vulnerable to you know assassinations and 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 they feel vulnerable in their communities, will they rearm? Either as a you know as a different group, or you know would they potentially join some of the criminal or drug trafficking groups as you know as hired uh, hired muscle, so to speak. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Uh, really appreciate the time that you've taken here, and um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hope hope it was hope it was useful for you guys, and I'm you know just uh, appreciate the interest in Columbia. To discuss the future of Colombia, we're now joined by Gabriela Serrano, who currently serves as IRI's Regional Program Director in Bogota, where she is responsible for programs in Colombia as well as Peru. Gabriela has worked for IRI for the last 12 years and has worked in Colombia for the past six. Gabriela, thank you for joining us. Yes, let's, let's do it. What's, what do you think is the most important thing that the government needs to do or that needs to happen um, in order to make this peace process and the demobilization successful and beneficial for Colombians? Well, definitely this, this reaching out to those communities that have been affected by the 50-year conflict is fundamental. Just bringing all what, what, what a state has to provide to its citizens in terms of roads, uh, services, uh, safety. Uh, these people probably don't even have an ID, and if they don't have a national ID, they cannot have access to, to the, the to the social programs, and they don't, and their kids cannot go to school, and they don't have access to health programs either. So all these, I think, it's fundamental so that so that these people feel that they are part of Colombia. Do citizens have faith that the Colombian government can be trusted to fill in? So the challenge for the government is that they will fight corruption. Uh, this is this is something that in Colombia, corruption is something that has been present for a long time and it's in, in, in a very high uh, level, but it has not been addressed as a main problem. Uh, it affects uh, most of the most of the of the of the government uh, uh, system the municipal government it it affects politics uh, the the one of the problems that colombian uh, electoral processes have it's it's uh, the fraud and the uh, buying of the votes that takes place here a lot and that's what affects people's trust what can we expect from the next election in 2018 <laughs> well it's going to be the first election with the fork uh, not uh, not fighting, so I think that's going to be great. But uh, as I mentioned before, it, 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 it's evident that then, then the, the country is polarized. Uh, President Santos won in 2014 with a 51% of the votes. In 2016, the the map of the country was very much similar to that uh, to that 2014 map. The the deep politicians have to really look into what the debate will will include. I expect that some groups, some political groups, will continue to talk a lot about the peace, but it's 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 also clear that um, corruption might be 
the main topic and what, what they will propose to um, to do to fight that. Colombia has one some of the oldest political parties in the continent, in, in Latin America, uh, the liberals and the conservative parties. Uh, but there is also uh, clear that um, they will need to uh, make alliances to really have good options to reach uh, some representation in Congress and to support the presidential candidates. What we are seeing nowadays is that there are several pre-candidates that are more interested in running uh, as an independent than as, as party candidates. Is Colombia's future now secure with this new peace agreement? Undoubtedly, it's, it's been a huge step, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the agreement. The agreement needs, needs to needs to take place and it, it's the building of the of the of the peace it's the key part now uh, and it's probably more complicated than reaching the agreement which was complicated by itself you know colombia has 25% of the population afro descendant and this is not something that's generally known colombian for uh, they need to integrate that population uh, and 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 when you see the map these afro colombians are located in the areas where the conflict took took the the, the, the uh, strongest uh, hit, so so you can even say that uh, we're in Colombia, it's has has Afro Colombians as, as their main um, victims. So you think that um, the trend is shifting, and uh, there's more awareness of the need to include more Afro Colombians in in politics. There's still a lot more to do. The Colombian Constitution have two seats in Congress that are in the House of Representatives that are assigned to Afro-Colombian descendants. And, and in the last general elections, these seats were were given to non-Afro-Colombians because of the lack of ability of, of the Afro-Colombian groups to advocate for their rights. Wait, how is it possible if they're 25% of the population, that they couldn't fill two seats in the Congress? If I'm not mistaken, um, I th- there were two seats, and there were like, I want to say 120 candidates for those two seats. So just imagine how dispersed was the voting. If they, if, if they could come together into five, ten candidates, that will definitely make it more probable to, to elect someone that represents them the, 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 the most. We ask this one lighthearted question every episode. So if an international time capsule was shut off into deep space, what would Colombia put in it? Oh, definitely a Juan Valdez coffee bag. Really? Oh, man. That has you to, see? It has to go there, yes. Now the aliens will be very happy. And so we'll, we'll need to find a way to put a, a, a pieces of the music they have here you know, it's not only, it's the salsa, it's the vallenato, it's the cumbia, which is really one of the strongest characteristics of these people. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Gabriela. Ciao. Como soy la reina, me hace la corte un fino violín. Me enamora un piano. Sinclair, what are the, the big three takeaways at the conclusion of this podcast that our listeners sort of need to know. I think one thing is that Plan Colombia was a major success, and uh, there are many lessons to be learned from it, especially for other conflict-ridden countries. I would say the second is Colombia can't leave a vacuum. Um, the work isn't done. Yes, the country was in the spotlight over the peace agreement, uh, but the hard work is actually starting now. And, I agree. Uh, 
there's a lot more that needs to be done. I agree, and I think it's going to take a lot of commitment from on the part of politicians. And I think this is the third takeaway, is that the politicians really need to uh, see this through. Um, and they need to work together towards the ultimate goal that I think everybody wants, which is peace in Colombia. Political will is everything here. Mm-hmm. A very special thank you to the former president of Colombia, President Pastrana. Nick Miroff of The Washington Post. And IRI's own Gabriela Serrano, based in Bogota. Our theme was composed by Alex Hollinghead. And throughout this episode, you heard Colombia's national anthem and Yo Me Llamo Cumbia by Toto Lo Amamo Cocina. Many thanks to Gabriela Serrano for the music recommendations. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If there is a country you would like to learn more about, leave a comment in our review section. While you're there, rate our podcast and let us know what you think. But please, no comments about my New Jersey accent. IRI works in over 80 countries worldwide. If you'd like to learn more, go to IRI.org or follow us on Twitter at IRI Global. So if people are still listening, Sinclair, let's give a hint at our next episode. Okay. Well, I have a really great trivia question about this. Uh-oh. Hit me. So what capital city is named for a variety of cotton fabric that's rich in exquisite patterns? I have no idea. You don't know your cottons? I do not know my cottons. Know. Except wrinkle-free. <laughs> well, if any of our listeners knows the answer... Uh, leave it in our review section and we will give you a shout out at the end of episode three. Bold promises, Sinclair. I'm not so sure you can write that check, but let's see.